Amen. Church, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, today's reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, and verses 13 through 23. And that can be found on the page 812 on the Pew Bible. So Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and so many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Thanks for sharing. Hey, we'll start with a little family chat here before we get going into our sermon. Wanted to, uh, wanted to say a word that actually uh, dovetails with Stephanie's a prayer that she just uh, gave us. I'm aware that the, the sermon series of sexuality and gender is a fraught topic for many, for many people, for some more so than others. And uh, this past week, in particular, preparing for, for this Sunday's sermon, I have been dialoguing with some of our female staff. So Taylor in particular, and also Christy, read parts of my sermon to them. And uh, so what do you think about this? They've been, they've been super helpful. But Taylor made the comment, uh, which I thought was really important. She says, you just, you need to know, she, just, she said to me, that 100% of women have been harmed by male sexual power. And so as you go into this, continue in this sermon series, like you just have to have that have that in your mind. And I think that's an important reminder. And it's not just women that have been harmed by misuse of sexual power. Many uh, young men in particular, too, have been as well. And so some of you may be coming into this sermon series with wounds and harms and hurts that you're carrying. Uh, and, and this is just tapping on a lot of those things. And uh, I want to be especially sensitive and compassionate to you where you're coming in. And um, I've been praying for you and just asking that the Lord would Help me not make too many bumbles in the things that I say and that you would hear what the Lord wants to speak into your life 
Taylor and Christy were super helpful. They, they were saying, all right, when you're, you know, when you're speaking, you don't, don't step there, 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 don't step there. I said, well, where can I step? So they said, ah, we don't know. That's your job, but just don't step in those places. You know? <laughs> so uh, I'm praying the Lord will help me not step in the wrong spots, uh, but that the Lord would be ministering to you and talking to you. These are particularly sensitive uh, issues uh, for you. And... Uh, I'm going to pray for us towards that end in just a second. But I wanted to say one other thing, too. I didn't get to my sermon Q&A from the past week, and I uh, just didn't get a chance to do it, so I'll try to get to that uh, this week. But one of the questions that came up um, a number of times was, in light of what was said in last week's sermon about uh, gender and power and how uh, there is a responsibility and a calling upon men to come under and serve women more generally and lift them up to places of dignity and equality, that how come that hasn't worked itself out in our church as it relates to female elders? And wouldn't the logical conclusion of what I was saying last week lead to then a female and male uh, shared elder board? So we're going to be picking up that topic on February 11th uh, with our donuts and discussion. So February 11th is um, Saturday. It's going to be 9 a.m. And uh, so that will be the topic in particular, or the question in particular we'll be addressing there. So I'm not going to try to answer that in the Q&A video that, that I do this coming week, but just want you to know that I'm aware that that's the elephant in the room for many of you, and we are, that's been my plan all along to, to hit that topic. So come on February 11th, 9 a.m. I think we're going to try to record it as well, so if you're not in town or you can't make it, that's fine, and we'll, we should be able to get a recording of that. And Christy, and Ray will be joining me. And so the three of us will be trying to figure out how we can think about uh, this topic here at Calvary. So, all right. Well, Christy sent me a prayer earlier this week. She said, I'm, she said there's a prayer, a prayer. I'm praying this for you. This comes from the Valley of Vision. And I was so appreciative of it. I'm going to pray it for myself uh, before we preach. And I think it's a prayer really uh, for all of us, I think, that reveals God's heart for us as we listen to God's words. So let me pray this for myself and for all of us. My master God, I am expected to preach, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people will be edified with divine truth, that an honest testimony will be given for you. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and passion. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a deep emotion to accompany the words I speak and grace to apply them to people's consciousness. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for yourself and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting your mercy. Give me freedom to open up the sorrows of your people and to set before them comforting consolations. Give your power to the truth preached and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. That was in there, Lord, but I don't think that of my church. Just want you to know, I just had to say that. <laughs> May your people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that people might be made holy. I myself need your support, comfort, strength, and holiness that I might be a pure channel of your grace and be able to do something for you. Give me then refreshment among your people and help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way, 
or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a Redeemer, or be harsh in treating Christ's death, its design and end, from lack of warmth or fervency. And keep me in tune with you as I do this work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our scripture has been read for us is from Matthew chapter 7. So hopefully you didn't put your Bible away. And if you did, you get that back out. As you are, let me just take a moment to remind ourselves of where we've been. Uh, some of you may have been out of town the past couple weeks. Perhaps you're just visiting Calvary for the first time this Sunday. Uh, you're coming in in the middle of a sermon series on sexuality and gender that we've entitled For the Love of the World. And in the first sermon of our series a number of weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, and we saw that human sexuality is a sign or a type, a miniature model that has been ordained by God to reveal or to indicate the relationship between Christ and the church. And from that, then, we took two key insights that have sort of been the key insights that we're working out in all of this sermon series. Insofar, this first insight, insofar as our sexuality was made by God as a sign that reveals Christ in the church, the relationship between Christ and the church orders, it governs, and explains all sexual conduct by humans. Christian sexual ethics are not just randomly or haphazardly put together. They're not just strung together. They are organized around the heavenly vision of Christ and the church. So we all are called to behave a certain way sexually because that reflects how Christ and the church relate to each other and behave spiritually. The second insight that we're working out here in the sermon series, and this is, I think, even more important, and this is the foundational insight of this sermon series, is that insofar as our sexuality is a sign that refers to Christ and the church. The real thing is Christ and the church, not human sexuality, which means that we can have the real thing even if we don't have fully the sign. Because to have Christ and the church is to have everything, even if we don't have every aspect of the earthly sign. So that was the first week. And then last week we looked at what the Christ church archetypal paradigm means for gender and power. And this morning, we look at what the Christ Church archetypal paradigm means for our definition of sex. So this morning's question is, what is sex? And here I don't mean sex as gender. I mean more specifically, and perhaps a bit more awkwardly for some of us, sex as an activity. On one hand, most of us are adults in the room, and we know what sex is. Even if we're students in the room, we know what sex is. But do we? Understanding what actually constitutes sex is not as simple as it once was. Our culture has broadened out the definition of sex to include all sorts of sexual activities. So we have heterosexual sex, gay sex, lesbian sex, virtual sex, oral sex, anal sex, solo sex, all are considered by our culture as forms of sex. 
But this morning, I want to challenge our culture's broad definition of sex by anchoring the Christian understanding of sex in the Christ church relationship. Christianity has a different understanding of what sex actually is in comparison to our culture's understanding. Not merely a different understanding of who you can engage in it with. The different fundamental definition and understanding of what sex is. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 7, 13 through 23, and our passage actually says nothing about sex. Maybe you noticed that. But it does talk about our relationship with Jesus. And we're going to use this text and help from a few other texts to help us make sense of what constitutes our spiritual union with Jesus, and then to move from there to the implications that that has for our understanding of what constitutes the fleshly union here in this world, the one flesh relationship. So we'll take our passage in two main sections, verses 13 through 21, that'll be the first half of the sermon, and then 22 through 33 will be the second half. So on to Matthew 7, 13 through 21. Our text here in Matthew comes at the very tail end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This is a a sermon that even non-Christians are familiar with. It begins in chapter 5, runs through 6 and 7, and it's here that Jesus details his ethical vision uh, for kingdom living. All the things that we know about Jesus so well. Jesus' comments about loving the poor, about the righteous interpretation of the Jewish law, the Lord's Prayer, which we just did here this morning, Jesus' assurance that our Heavenly Father knows the needs of His children and is taking care of us, the charge not to judge others, the golden rule to do unto others as you would have done unto you. It's all the best stuff of Jesus' teachings put together here in the Sermon on the Mount. But right here at the end of the sermon, Jesus gives his listeners a sober warning. And that's what we're reading. It's right at the end of the sermon, and it's a warning from Jesus. And in verse 13, he tells his listeners to enter by the narrow gate. And he warns them that the path that leads to destruction is broad and easy, and that many people are walking upon it. But the path that leads to life Well, that is narrow, and it's hard, and few find it. In verse 15, he tells his listeners to beware the false prophets who disguise themselves as sheep but are really wolves. Jesus says the false prophets, they will lead you down the broad road to destruction. And then in verses 16 through 20, he uses the analogy of a fruit-bearing tree. And he says, uh, he's telling this analogy to help them, to help his listeners distinguish between the true prophets and the false prophets. Because the false prophets will be disguised. They will look like sheep. So how can we tell them apart? Well, Jesus says we can know the difference between the true prophet and the false prophet by their fruit. You can't see the root system of a tree to know how the roots are. But you can see the health of the tree by the fruit that it bears. Just as a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree does not produce good fruit, in the same way, Jesus says, a false prophet will not be able to produce good fruit. And then Jesus drops the metaphorical language that he's using and he gives us a picture of the day of judgment in verse 21. So look in verse 21 because I want to focus our attention here. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is referring to the day of judgment that will come when everyone will be brought for him. And Jesus tells us that many will come to him in that day saying, Lord, Lord. Now, given the context of what Jesus is talking about here, I think Jesus most explicitly has the false prophets in mind. Jesus is saying these false prophets will claim Jesus as their Lord on the day of judgment. But their claim will be a false claim. It's going to take more than mere words, Jesus says, to gain entrance into the kingdom. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who actually live as Jesus taught them to live. Or as Jesus says here, who do the will of my Father in heaven, which amounts to the same thing. Jesus is teaching humanity how to do the will of the Father. Those are the ones who will gain entrance. Or we could say it, it's those who actually bore fruit. The falseness of the false prophets will be revealed on the day of judgment because they will have words, but they will have no spiritual fruit. And that should, of course, make sense to us as good reformational evangelical Protestants because the Bible teaches and our theology teaches us that all those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. All those whom God forgives, he also transforms. So to claim the name of Christ, but to have no fruit, that's a vain claim. The reason that faith and fruit go together is because our faith lays hold of the promises of Christ and unites us to Christ. And in our union with Christ, we have what we have becomes his and what he has becomes ours. His divine life is connected to us. Our human life is connected to him. To be connected to the pardoning power of Jesus is to be connected to the life-transforming power of Jesus. So in John 15, Jesus uses the analogy of fruit again. And you can listen to hear what he says. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in John 15, uh, verses 1 through 8, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is telling us, both in Matthew chapter 7 and in John chapter 15, that our capacity to bear spiritual fruit is a sign and is contingent upon our remaining in him as he remains in us. If we remain in him and he remains in us, then we will bear fruit. But if we do not, we will not. This is, of course, what Paul teaches us in our baptism. 
We are baptized into Christ, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We die with Christ so that we can rise with Christ. And it's in our union with Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection that we can live a different kind of life. He places his life inside of us, and our life is transformed and produces spiritual fruit. This idea is all over the New Testament. And if you've been raised in a kind of Christianity that has taught you that spiritual fruit is not a necessary consequence of your union with Christ, that faith is just a thing that you have in your head, but it need have no effect on your life to be constituting real faith, Beware that you have not been seduced onto the Broadway by the false prophets. To claim to have faith, to say, Lord, Lord, but to have no fruit, how can our faith claim be valid? Of course, Jesus isn't expecting perfection of us. All of us are in various stages of process. No one person can judge with final and absolute authority the authenticity of another person. Jesus is the final judge, thank God. He alone can look into the human heart and see what all is there. So many of us might look to others, or some of us might look to others that we have no fruit, but we are actually very much alive. When Pastor Todd moved out of his office a number of years ago, he left, uh, he left a number of plants, but they were in a different office up on the third floor. But he didn't tell me that he had left these plants for me until about three weeks later. So by the time I went up to find them, they all, the leaves were dropping off. They were all flopped all over the floor. They looked, I thought they were dead. So in my judgment, I thought these plants are dead. But we we watered them and they all came back to life. So the roots were still alive. There was still life in the plant, but it couldn't be seen visibly. So I can't make, no one can make a final judgment about whether or not the life of Christ is inside of anyone. Right? We might look dead on the outside, but the life is doing something on the inside. Right? But the bottom line, the bottom line is that when we think about the clear expectation that Jesus gives to us in spiritual life and all of its health, right, is that our spiritual union with Jesus should, it eventually will produce a measure of true spiritual fruit, which is to say our union with Christ is a fertile union. Now let's turn from there to a Christian understanding of sex. As we considered the Christ-Church relationship, how Jesus imparts his spiritual life to the church, and the church bears spiritual fruit, that becomes a crucial way of thinking about the meaning of what constitutes sex. Following the archetype of Christ in the church, earthly sex is, by definition, a loving and intimate merger of two lives that bears fruit, which is to say, sex is a procreative earthly act that resides within a covenantal framework that matches or mirrors the procreative covenantal framework that exists between Christ and the church. So think about for a moment what the scriptures mean when it says that the two become one flesh. What does this expression mean? Well, it's not referring only to the merger of the husband's and wife's bodies. The Bible refers to the act of sex as one flesh because the bodily union of the husband and wife is actually making one flesh. The child 
is the living instantiation of the one flesh that the two have become. So how do we know that a particular man and woman have become one flesh? It's not just their words. It's not just because they say it to be true. We know it through the visible fruit of their children. And that doesn't mean that every Christian act of sex is necessarily procreative. And there's more to a Christian understanding of sex than simply procreation. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. And I'm also aware that procreation, a procreative vision of sex immediately raises questions around the issue of infertility or when older couples marry past their childbearing years. And I'm also aware that procreative sex is very difficult for some married couples. Physical pain or other medical health situations make it difficult or perhaps even impossible to easily engage in sex. I'm going to give lots of sympathy on all of those points. But I don't want us to take the difficult exceptions and let them redefine the rule. We can't just skip past the procreative realities of sex or relativize the procreative aspect of sex as inconsequential. The great power, the great weight, the earthly glory of sex is precisely its procreative potential. The irony is that in broadening out the definitions of sex to include all sorts of sexual activities that are inherently non-procreative, our culture has reduced the definition of sex down to mere orgasm. But sex is not simply two body parts touching each other, followed by orgasm. Our culture, ever since the sexual revolution, has encouraged us to think of sex in that way. To think of sex as a form of pleasure, of recreation, a pastime, a hobby, But we all know intuitively and sense that sex is more than that. And we sense that because we know truly that sex has the power to produce an entirely new life. All of our very persons exist. All of us here this morning, as personal individual beings, we exist because of the procreative power of sex. And that's what makes sex so personal to each of us, because it makes persons. That's what sex does. And if we disconnect the procreative power of sex from our understanding or our definition of sex, if we reduce our understanding of sex down to mere orgasm, we are separating the pleasure of sex from the responsibility of sex. Children are the glorious responsibility that we must be open to if God so chooses to will it and bless it, if we want to seek the pleasure of sex. To sever the connection between pleasure and responsibility leads to all sorts of ruins in all sorts of areas of our lives. What would your family life be like if you sought the pleasures and comforts of your family but felt no responsibility toward the members of your family? If you sought the advantages of your country, but took no responsibility towards its well-being. If you sought the pleasures of friendship, but took no responsibility 
towards your friends? What would your relationship be like to food and drink if you sought the pleasures of food and drink but felt no need to be responsible in your consumption of them? Pleasure and responsibility go hand in hand in the Christian ethic. The responsibility of children is what keeps sex from being more than simply a self-aggrandizing form of recreation. And that is exactly what our culture has turned sex into. The sexual revolution has severed the connection between sex and procreation. And God help us, we have descended as a culture into sexual dysfunction. I'm tempted here to give a long and impassioned lament about the mind-numbing rise of pornography, the feminist legitimatization of prostitution with its claim that sex work is real work, the 63 million abortions since 1973, and whatever side we land on with pro-life, pro-choice, all of us would agree that abortions are not a good thing. 63 million. The nearly 50% of wedlock births. The 15 million single moms. The 50% divorce rate. The rise and mainstreaming of BDSM and the hookup culture. All of that is symptomatic of our culture's efforts to separate the pleasure of sex from the responsibility of sex. Another irony in all of this is it hasn't really worked. 50% almost of children are born in this country out of wedlock. We have not been able to separate pleasure from children. We've only managed to separate children from marriage. I don't think 1950 was the golden age of all things related to sexuality and gender because it was not. But listen, when it comes to sexual ethics, there's a lot of issues involved in sexuality and gender, but on sexual ethics, the train came off the tracks in the 1960s when our culture severed the connection between sex and procreation. But I'm not going to conclude this sermon with an impassioned lament about the disintegration of our culture. I want to conclude this sermon with an impassioned plea for you to know and be known by Jesus. So let's get back into our text here. All right, now this is moving to the second half of the service, looking at verse, sermon, looking at verse uh, 22. Verse 22, Jesus says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These false prophets will object to Christ's judgment that they have borne no fruit. They will appeal to the miracles of their prophetic ministry. They will say, in effect, but we do have fruit. Look at all we did. We performed miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Surely you remember all that we did in your name. And then Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now note that Jesus doesn't say, oh, you never really did any of those things. You're just making stuff up. None of that is true. He doesn't say that. He doesn't contest their claim to have done miracles in his name. Think about Judas. Judas spent three years following Jesus, along with all the other disciples. And along with all the other disciples, he drove out demons, 
and he performed miracles of healings? Did he not look on the surface of things just like all the other disciples? Or think about the prophet Balaam from Numbers chapter 22 through 24, who God used to speak a supernatural blessing over Israel as they came up out of the land of Egypt. And the blessing that Balaam spoke was true, and it truly came to pass. But like Judas, Balaam was motivated primarily by greed, and in the end, he was swept away in judgment. Or think of King Saul in 1 Samuel 19, who prophesied by the Holy Spirit, even as he was on his way to persecute God's prophets. Just because someone acts like a follower of Christ or does a miracle in the power of Christ, even utilizes the Spirit's power, doesn't mean that one is legitimately following Jesus as Lord. So what's the difference then between true fruit and false fruit? Why are the false prophets being rejected here? What's wrong with their fruit? Look again now at verse 23. Jesus says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. What does that mean? Jesus knows about them well enough to know that they're workers of lawlessness. So he certainly knows about them. But he says he never knew them. The key to understanding Jesus' statement lies in the word to know. The word that Matthew uses here, the underlying Greek word, is it's a Greek term, uh, gnosko, which is commonly translated throughout the Bible as to know. And it has a lot of basic overlap with our English word to know. But this particular Greek word has a particular slant to it. It doesn't just mean to know about something. Rather, it emphasizes knowing something by experience. Not just knowing something intellectually by reason, but knowing something by experience. Gnosko very often expresses a close and intimate relationship between the one who knows and the person or thing that is known. So in 1 Samuel 3, 7, the writer of 1 Samuel tells us that when the prophet Samuel was still a young boy, he did not yet know the Lord. Skonosko. Clearly, Samuel knew about the Lord because in that passage, he was serving as an assistant in the temple to the temple priest. He knew about the Lord, but he did not know the Lord. He had not yet had an experiential knowledge of the Lord. Or in Amos 3.2, when God says of the nation Israel, to the nation Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. Clearly, God knows about the other nations. But there was no other nation where he had come and made his home among them, like he had done with Israel through the tabernacle and then the temple. No other nation has an, had an experiential knowledge of God. Or perhaps the, the most relevant use of gnosko for this sermon in this sermon series, the term gnosko is used a number of times in the Old Testament to denote sexual intimacy. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and she conceived. And the point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 7, 22, 
is that the false teachers, for however much they had accessed the Spirit's power and performed miracles, they did not know Jesus, and he did not know them. They had no experiential knowledge of each other. So what does true fruit then look like? What does it look like if you know Jesus and he knows you? What is the nature of that true fruit? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 13. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in 13, 1 through 8, it's a rather famous passage. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, it's kind, does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The Apostle Paul is saying basically the same thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. You can have all the prophetic powers you want to understand all of the spiritual mysteries, even have faith to move the mountains, that big of a miracle. You can cast out demons. You can heal in Jesus' name. But if you don't have love, you don't have anything. That's what it means to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus. It means to love him, to be loved by him. Not in a utilitarian way that merely uses Jesus for what you can get from him. That was the problem of the false prophets. They were using Jesus' power, but they didn't have any real meaningful love or relationship with him. But in a love relationship that is marked by patience and kindness, humility, trust, a lack of pride or resentfulness, a love relationship that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, a love relationship that never ends, this is how Jesus loves us. And this is how he wants us to love him. Jesus hasn't entered into a covenant with us so that we can turn tricks for him and perform spiritual wonders. He wants us to experience him loving us. And he wants us to experience us loving him the heart of Jesus is the heart of God the Father. The Father loves us. God loves us. And he wants us to love him in the deepest, most profound, tender, self-giving, life-giving way. This is the whole heart of the message of the gospel. Now, let me briefly connect this back to sex then and get to my impassioned plea for all of us to know Jesus. The Christian vision of sex isn't merely procreation and making babies. God has given us sex to model the tenderness 
and the spiritual intimacy and joy that Christ and the church have for each other. Which means that the same sort of care and intimacy and joy that exists in Christ's relationship with the church should be present in marital sexual relations. And the care and intimacy and joy of marital relations is a reflection of the mutual love between Christ and the church in its own right. So even if for reasons of health or infertility or age, sex is not able to be procreative, a married couple's mutual openness to life is its own reflection of the archetypal reality of Christ and the church. The willingness, even if not the opportunity, but the willingness to hold together the pleasure of sex and the responsibility of sex, even if God does not bless you with the responsibility of children, and that's not in our power to produce children, it's in God's power, but if there's an openness to the responsibility, then that provides its own kind of sanctification and proper ordering to the pleasures of sex. It's when we intentionally choose to sever the relationship between pleasure and responsibility that the pleasure of sex turns inward and sour. So if this morning you're here, perhaps as a married couple who's not able to have children, don't conclude that your sexual relationship cannot reflect the beauty and the glory of Christ and the church. If you enter into marital intimacy with tenderness, and self-giving care, desiring to know and be known by each other, you are imaging the archetypal reality of Christ and the church. And that leads to my conclusion, my final plea to all of us. There's one thing that I want all of us to know throughout this sermon series, and that I have said at the end of every sermon, saying at the end of this sermon, and I will say at the end of every single sermon that comes after this, it's this. Sex and sexuality and marriage, while they are beautiful gifts, they are but only types and signs. The real thing is Jesus. Many of you here this morning, you are not married, and you are committed to living according to the, to the Christian sexual ethic. And that means for you a life, at least presently, with no sex. And I was once not married too. And I know it's difficult to live a chaste and celibate life. And I also know that it can still be difficult as a married man or woman. Talking to any married man or woman will disabuse you of that idea. There are also some of you here this morning, perhaps not just a few of you, who are married. But your marriage, for whatever reason, is relationally broken. Such that your marriage has become devoid of sexual intimacy. Or for some married couples, there are health issues that stand in the way of your ability to engage in sexual intimacy. And I don't want to make light of any of that. All of that can be very difficult and cause a great deal of emotional pain. But listen to me, all of us, whether we are single or married or gay or straight, in a good marriage, in a bad marriage, healthy or unhealthy, young or old, sex is just a shadow. It's just a pencil sketch. 
It's just a rumor, just a faint whisper of the beauty that is Jesus. Jesus is everything. When the Apostle Paul took the gospel out into the Roman world, he took along with him the Christian sexual ethic. I talked about this a number of weeks ago on our Sunday night lecture. And all of these Roman men who were encountered by the gospel, they were accustomed, according to the dictates of their culture, they were accustomed to having sex whenever and however they wanted. And they were told by the Christian gospel that if they converted, they would have to limit their sexual activity to only sex with their wives. Now many, perhaps even most Roman men, had not married for love. That's not how marriages worked back in the Roman days of the first century. Their whole culture had taught them that wives were not for sexual pleasure, only for making babies and managing the family home. For sexual pleasure, Roman men were taught to look to mistresses or to prostitutes or to slaves. Sex once or twice a year with one's wife in order to carry on the family life, that was very often the only reason that Roman men forced themselves to have sex with their wives. Imagine being married to, a, to someone that you had no sexual interest in and then being told that if you converted, the only person you could have sex with from there on out was that person. Why did any of these Roman men convert? What made them willing to give up what must have seemed to them any hope of sexual pleasure? It's because they had seen Jesus. They had encountered the living person of Jesus. They had come to know and be known by his infinite glory. And they had said, I want him. Whatever I have to let go of to get him, I want him. And I don't know how to present, as your pastor, I don't know how to present Jesus to you like that, to make you see him as he truly is. But I can tell you that I have caught a glimpse of him. I have seen him like that. And many of you have seen him like that too. And you stand up and you give testimonies about it. You've seen the glory of the risen Jesus. You've met him. He knows you. And you know him. And he's everything to you. That's the beauty of who Christ is. And when we see who he is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, However hard it might be to let go of earthly things to lay hold of him, he's worth it. He's worth it. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love all of you. I tell you that every week. I don't love you as much as I love my wife and my kids. I've got to be honest with you, just tell you that. <laughs> but I do love you. But I would give up everything for Jesus. Everything for Jesus. Jesus is my everything and the source of my love. He's how I love you and how I love my kids and how I love my wife. And without him, what do I have? I have nothing. And he wants to be the source of your love too. And he will be the source of your love if you would open up your heart to him. So I would 
plead with you to open your heart to him. You can't force him. I can't force him. But if you open your heart to him, he will come to you in his time, in his way, in his gentleness, in his kindness. He will come and reveal himself to you and he will be the hope of all things that you ever wanted in your life. He loves you. He loves you. Open yourself up to him. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to close by singing an old song by Fernando Ortega. Some of you might know it. Give me Jesus. Maybe some of you can sing that wholeheartedly this morning, and that's fantastic. And you just sing along with Greg and with Aaron as they sing. But maybe for some of you, that's, a, that's just an honest struggle, that Jesus is better than everything. Maybe you're not quite there yet. Then let this words wash over you and minister to you and let it be Jesus' call to you to receive him as the hope of your life. God, thank you for giving us Jesus. We, we're just so prone to run after everything else. And we think that everything's going to be something. And it's, it's, it's fine, but it's not everything we hoped it would be. Because you're the only thing that is everything that we hoped you would be. So Lord, if there's a heart or two here this morning that is uniquely ready to open themselves up to you, I pray that you would just manifest yourself to them in a tender and a beautiful way. And that they would behold you and you would become for them the hope of their life. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would just keep gently knocking at the doors of our heart and moving towards us and letting us know that you love us. Keep drawing us closer to yourself, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.